We have had a record number of highs this year, 51 so far this year, and just continuing to mount those on. At this pace, uh, we're going to be able to set the most number of new highs in a single year ever on record if we keep this current pace going. So again, now what does that mean? When was the last time that we had this many record highs? Of course, well, it was 1995. Of course, you had a slowdown in 1996 in the markets. 1997, 1998, you had record number highs. Um, and of course, that led to 2000. Um, and again, this is always the important thing to remember. Records are fantastic, right? It's always great to make a new record. Usain Bolt, man, fastest guy in the world, sets a new record. That's a record until it's ultimately beaten. And the point is, is that records are records for a reason. And normally when you start talking about a record number of things, typically you're very late stage within a particular cycle. You're not normally setting in the financial markets, particularly, you're not setting new records coming off of a low. You know, this is so when you're talking about setting new records, that means you're probably towards the end of some cyclical action in the markets. Again, nothing wrong with that. Just something you need to be aware of is that we get very excited about records, right? We're going to we'll be at S&P 5000 by next year. This is the new kind of benchmark for the markets. We're setting record number of new highs. August, which is typically one of the weaker months of the year, had the most number of record new highs ever on record, period. So again, this market has defied gravity, defied logic, defied seasonality, doesn't matter. September also tends to be a very weak month of the year. In fact, it has the weakest performance record of any month out of the 12 months of the year. Um, well, will this be another month that the markets defy that seasonality record? We'll find out. Lots of stuff going on here today. Markets are going to be up today, um, generally because the first day of the month are when you know, major mutual funds, pension funds, hedge fund managers, et cetera, are beginning to put money to work for the month. So again, not surprising, there's a little bit of selling yesterday as we ended the month, not surprising to see money coming back into the market's position, and particularly because this is also the last month of the quarter. So everybody wants to have the right stocks on their books as we go into the last month of the quarter. Yesterday, we talked about an interesting statistic, Apple, is now a two and a half trillion dollar company. And we said yesterday that's pretty amazing because that's roughly about 10% of the entire US economy. Well, if, if you go back and look now at the US tech mega caps, right? The FANG stocks, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Nvidia, they make up more than 50% of the entire U.S. economy right now, just those, just those major tech stocks. And again, you have to look at the logic of this. It sounds fine. It's like, that's awesome, man. They're big companies. Yeah, but we got to remember the earnings for these companies, the valuation of these companies come from what you and I purchase, right? So it's what we consume that drives their top line sales, which sales minus expenses equals earnings ultimately. And so how can these companies be worth 50% of the entire economy? That means that 50 cents of every dollar spent in a household is going solely to these companies. That's obviously not the case, which means that valuations remain a problem in markets. Now, again, doesn't mean anything important other than, you know, valuations are very elevated. And while valuations are a terrible market timing indicator, obviously, uh, they don't tell you much about what's going to happen today or tomorrow or next week. Again, we've talked about this before. Valuation is very important in terms of determining long-term 
long-term returns on stocks. And again, it's just very high valuations. About to get into the rougher part of earnings expectations going forward as well, because as we leave quarter two behind us and really move well into quarter three reporting, the, the annual comparisons over year-over-year -year earnings growth, et cetera, are going to become much more challenging here. So a lot of this big rise in earnings expectations that we have are going to start to get tailored back here a bit as we begin to see weaker economic growth going forward. And, of course, we're seeing that already. Yesterday, consumer confidence from the conference board also dropped dramatically uh, from the last report. That confirmed the drop that we saw in the University of Michigan consumer confidence report as well, showing that consumers are contracting here a bit. Not surprising now that we're seeing, uh, you know, the contraction of liquidity, right? Benefits are running out. The eviction moratorium is, is has ended. Uh, that was overruled by the Supreme Court. That leaves 750,000 potential households at risk of being evicted, but they're gonna to have to come up with rent if they wanna stay in. So that's gonna take money away from spending on stuff, services, travel, et cetera, and going back into paying bills. Uh, so this is gonna have a little bit of a shift to the landscape, and again, potentially leading to more disappointment in a lot of the economic growth. The Citigroup Surprise Index also dropping fairly sharply here in negative territory as these earnings disappointments continue to kind of mount up. Um, lastly, as we kind of look at really the, the outlook as we go forward to the end of the year, again, this is the time of the year that we've got to start looking towards the end of the year, right? October, November, December tends to typically be very strong months of the year. Um, it's also important to start your Christmas shopping early. <laughs> There is a record number of ships now sitting out in the harbors waiting to offload. Uh, we're now back to the pandemic highs of the number of ships that are sitting out there waiting to offload, which means more supply constraints. And of course, this Hurricane Ida going through New Orleans, that's a major port as well. Uh, that's going to certainly add to the disruption of supply chain. So again, a lot of the things that you're going to want for Christmas, if you're going to buy it, you need, you know, Black Friday started uh, last Friday. So it's going to be one of those things that you, you need to get started early on because likely if you don't order it now or soon, you're probably not going to be able to get it in time for Christmas. So again, that'll help. But you know what? The good news about that, that's going to help retail sales pick up here a little bit. Retail sales have been weak. So if y'all all go out and start your Christmas shopping early, that'll certainly help things. So there you go. So I've written some articles in the past. You know, I've, I've, I've not been kind to the SEC in the past because they have been complicit in allowing a lot of the things that go on in the financial markets that really go a long way towards fleecing the retail investor um, to, to a large degree. And, you know, and, and again, we get these proposals every now and then. It's like, hey, let's let retail investors invest in private equity. Sounds great until they get fleeced, defrauded, everything else because they don't understand the risk of private equity or how to how to evaluate it. Look, even most professionals don't know how to evaluate private equity. And a lot of advisory firms, they go out and hire third parties to do third party compliance consulting just to do the evaluations. That's how complex it is. And so how are you going to evaluate some product at home without having access to all the data or you know, the financial capability to analyze it, right? So we do these things, though, because it's like, hey, well, you know, we need to let the little guy into this. No, that's not what, that's not the reason. The reason is not to let the little guy into it. It's because the SEC has been lobbied saying, hey, 
there's a whole bunch of money sitting over there that we could go grab if you'd let us sell it to retail investors. <laughs> so this is about people making, this is profit motive. Um, and so we've talked about a few of these things. One of the big fleeces for investors is payment for order flow. And this is where, you know, the reason that you get free trades, it ain't free. We've talked about this before. Free trading isn't free. Your data is being sold off to hedge funds who are front running your trades and they're making money off of you. And we've written articles on this. If you go to our website, realinvestmentadvice.com and type in payment for order flow um, in the search bar, you'll come up with an article that we wrote on that. But again, what this is, it is, is this is how this allows companies like Robinhood, as example, to allow retail investors to trade what they think is for free. But if you take a look at the revenue stream that Robinhood gets, they're selling those trades off to hedge funds for hundreds of millions of dollars. That's where the revenue comes from. That's how they make money. It's not really great for the retail investor. Another thing that the SEC did that was a really bad idea was going down to penny trades, right? So in other words, when we uh, look at the price of a stock, we used to do it back in the 90s, back in the day, uh, last century. That makes you feel old. Uh, you know, an eight, we did it in quarters and eighths, right? So a stock would trade at 50 and an eighth, 50 and a quarter, 50 and a half. And, and so... It, it, it allowed for a bit more of a spread between the bid and the offer, which is how the trading companies would make their money, and you would work on the bid and the offer. And you'd pay a commission on top of that <laughs> to transact the stock. Now, the good thing about that was is it slows down your trading, right, because it's costing you money to trade. A transactional tax, right, a, a commission is actually a good thing. It makes you think about the trade you're going to make. It, it stops this rapid-fire trading, which ultimately leads to larger losses. And this is proved out over time and study after study after study, is that high-frequency trading of individuals by individuals, even institutions, wind up in creating larger losses than gains over time. So, again, applying some of these ideas, you know, back into the markets, you know, yeah, markets aren't going to be free. They're not going to be cheap. Um, but... It will actually be healthier for you. It's, it's, it's kind of like eating spinach, right? Nobody likes it. And if you say you like spinach, I'm going to call you a liar. Nobody likes spinach. But you eat it because it's good for you, right? Makes you, makes you healthy, right? You need that. Same thing sometimes. Paying for something is sometimes a good thing. You know, sometimes just because it's free doesn't mean it's really good for you. Uh, Danny Ratliff, uh, you had some comments on this as well. They're actually talking, trying to make a push here towards moving to a half penny um on trading yeah members exchange actually a group that's been been designed by wall street firms so you wonder who this is actually out there to really help <laughs> exactly is is make push to the sec to go to half a penny and so you would think that if you could you could start to bring down the prices a little bit from that you would you'd maybe disrupt the markets enough that to change it right right um but, you know, we, we talk about the gamification of and what the SEC is doing. SEC is also looking into Robinhood. They're looking into some of these other have gamified the markets. Right. And Jason Zweig of, of Wall Street Journal actually just wrote an article on that here over the last week. And it's pretty interesting to think about how they have turned these things into almost like a casino, using some of the same behavioral tactics that uh, casinos utilize to get people to stay, to get people to continue mm -hmm. to sit in front of that machine they're doing that to you via your online brokerage trading, which is really kind of weird 
And also kind of scary when you think about it, that they're manipulating you to continue to trade. Right. Well, and again, it's, it's you know, and again, this is how Robinhood makes their money is that the more they get you to trade, right, then the more orders they have that they then sell off to Citadel, which, you know, pays hundreds of millions of dollars for that, for the for those orders. Now, let me just ask you a question. It's like, you know, people are going right now, they're going, well, who cares, right? Goes, okay, so, so they sell the order off to Citadel, who does whatever they do with it. Well, why would Citadel pay, you know, $100 million a year for your orders, right? And, and the reason is, is because they get to see the order first. They place their orders in front of your orders and, you know, either long or short relative to what you're doing to capture the spread. And that's how they're making tons of money on top of that. So, sure, they're spending $100 million to make a billion. That's, that's, that's what's called, you know, good business for them. Uh, SEC Chair Gensler is talking about now outlawing payment for order flow, and, and the immediate response was like, oh, my gosh, that's going to reduce liquidity in the markets. Yeah, probably, and it's probably a good thing. Um, you know, the, the whole premise and, and a lot of the things that have happened in the markets here over the last couple of years in particular is this idea of gamification, which is something that we've been talking about for, for years now, right? If you, can, if you take a look at how video games work, your kids are just getting to the age of starting to play video games. Um, no, they're not, they're not playing or you don't allow not, them. Not, not in my house. Not yet. <laughs> We've been able to avoid that. Yeah. Not for long. They have friends. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. So, you know, but you know, the, the whole, if you ever watch and I, I've done a lot of, you know, watching my kids play and, and it's quite fascinating. You know, they, you know, when you go into a video game, you're playing it in order to get to another level, right? You've got to, you've got to actually spend money. It's all free to play until you actually want to level up in the game or do whatever. You've got to start spending money. Um, <laughs> a friend of mine um, got a credit card bill for $4,000 because <laughs> His son was was playing on his phone, and his son's and the phone that he was playing on was attached to the dad's credit card, and he was buying stuff in the game. And said, "Hey, if you need this, buy this." And the kids were like, "Okay, I'll buy it," <laughs> and had no idea what was going on until the bill came in. But this kind of the same idea is that if you want, you know, you know these these you know adding these layers of gamification and and you know entice people to trade more and more and more and more and more. And, and the problem is, as long as the markets are going up, it's great. You know, what's going to happen eventually, though, is something will happen, and as always does, where there's a big crack in the market. And a lot of, a lot of these young millennials, I'm actually writing an article on this right now, uh, you know, in, in Gen Zers in particular, um, you know, they're going to lose a tremendous amount of money. They'll lose faith in the markets, and the, it will devastate their ability to save and grow money for a while because they'll, they'll stop investing because they got hammered, um, and, and they've lost wealth that they now can't grow. So... And this is important. You know, Gen Zers were born between 1995 and 2005. That means in, at the at the peak of the financial crisis in 2009, they were between the ages of five and 16, right? They've never actually been through a bear market investing. All they've seen is a market that just goes up. So, you know, and, and that's that's a lot of the problem that goes on today. Well, but it's also they've created an environment where it's very emotional. Everybody has that fear of missing out. It's almost mm -hmm. like sitting in front of the slot machine and you always think the next one is the one that's going to win, so you don't want to get up. And it's the same thing. So now you have that emotional aspect tied to it. On the flip side, when you do see something in an environment that nobody, you know, or a lot of the people have not experienced with the market actually going down, what? Mm -hmm. 
for an extended period of time. Yeah. And so the, that emotion sets in and people start to click the button the other way. And that's where it becomes that bigger issue. Right. And, and you know, yeah. that lack of experience. Well, it is. And, you know, look, this is, you know, the problem, though, unfortunately, that it always occurs. You know, you know, Wall Street lobbies heavily the SEC to do things that are beneficial for them. It's not necessarily beneficial for the retail investor. Um, and ultimately, these things always end badly. And it was interesting. Um, former Fed chairman, uh, sorry, uh, Ford, uh, former Fed vice chair Don Cohn uh, recently wrote an article that says, you know, he made a great point. He said, look, it's, it's important that the Federal Reserve focus on price stability, inflation, and full employment. They also need a third mandate, and Congress should impose a third mandate, which is financial stability. And that's the one thing we don't focus on is creating financial stability. And this is why every time there's a downturn, what's the one thing we have to do? We have to go bail out the major banks again every single time. And yet what they tell us that, you know, just recently, oh, they just passed all the stress tests. They can, they can, down, they can withstand a downturn in the economy and a recession. They'll be fine. They got plenty of capital. And as soon as you, that's what they told us before 2020. And what do we do in 2020? We bailed them out again. So, you know, we keep going through this same process because these things that we do, they sound great. And look, free trading is awesome, right? It's cheap. I can do it all I want. I don't have to worry about paying a commission. But there's a consequence for these things. We develop bad behaviors. We take on bad actions. We, we extend ourselves well beyond where we should. Right now, young investors are taking out home equity lines of credit, credit card debt, personal loans to invest in the stock market because they feel like it's a can't-lose environment. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you go to Vegas and throw your mortgage down onto the, onto the poker table if you were guaranteed that you can't lose? It, it makes sense. The problem is there is no guarantee, and ultimately, this is going to wind up in a very bad way. And everybody's going to look back and go, well, you should have seen that coming. <laughs> but they don't tell you that on TV right now. All right. Yep, that, that's the truth. Got me on a rant. But, All right. but well, no, that's that's a fair point. I mean, I think that's a really, it's, it's really important for people to understand that these things they're they're going to occur at some time nobody's taken out uh, a recession from the business cycle it's going to happen right. it's just not a matter of if it's just when all right come back for the break and uh, talk a little bit about bitcoin el salvador and what that has to do with the u.s market don't go away talking about um, you know getting ready for a bitcoin experiment and it's the same thing that i was talking about just the other day danny uh, a city in missouri is also talking about giving their 1,500 citizens Bitcoin that they have to hold on to for five years uh, using, you know, <laughs> government funds to give them the money. So kind of an interesting, uh, you know, move. We're seeing a lot of people trying to move in that direction to try to use Bitcoin as an experiment, one, you know, one form or another. Well, there's got to be a better way to do this. I mean, I, I, obviously the guy there probably has a, a pretty handy a large investment in Bitcoin, I would assume. So, mm -hmm. hey, what better way? Give government money to everybody so that they have to invest in it too. Right. Um, you know, you, you create that that demand for it automatically. So pretty genius on his part. But this this with El Salvador, they're actually making it the national currency, which is going to pose some significant issues, especially with, you know, the potential price swings that we've seen mm -hmm. in Bitcoin. 
this can can be a big problem for El Salvador and their debt. If you look at the country, you know they they have about 26 billion in GDP. They're actually been in talks with IMF to take another distribution from the IMF funds, so International Monetary Fund, and they didn't tell them that they're going to make Bitcoin part of their national currency. Oh, probably a big deal here. Yeah. I don't know. You know, you you would think that it's something that you would tell somebody as you're going to get a loan. Right. But we know these loans are probably never going to be paid back. So what does it matter? Right. Um, but the the bigger part here is they're actually they've created an app called Chivo and they're they want to give all El Salvadorians. They want to give them thirty dollars equivalent of, of U.S. dollars. So mm -hmm. they're going to be able to go out. They're going to be able to spend money on this app. Um, but they don't have the infrastructure for it. So the electricity aspect that it actually takes for this. So they're looking and hoping that this also sparks foreign investment. They want to be able to figure out how to um, harness the power of volcanoes. Seriously, Lance. Uh, geothermal so you geothermal anybody, energy. It's, it's, it's a thing. So so they need, it, they need foreign investment here. So any foreign investors out there that are looking for a great investment, this could be your place. Jump in here in El Salvador. Um, you know, this is a place to put some money now, Lance. What, what could possibly go wrong, right? I mean, it's not like, you know, the, the country's been rife with, you know, graft and everything else for, you know, decades. But other than that, it's all good. Um, well, yeah, this will not be a, a, a safe haven for money laundering for anything else of <laughs> no, that nature. You know, we're going to set happen. up and facilitate it all. Don't worry. Just come here. Exactly. Yeah. It would never be the case. Um, you know, speaking of uh, Ponzi schemes. Let's get to Social Security here real quick. Uh, the Social Security Trust Fund has, I'm reading, I'm reading this uh, headline here. Uh, the 2021 trustees report shows that trust funds will now run dry in 2034 as a result of the uh, economic fallout from the pandemic. Now, it's an interesting statement that right now they're looking at a shortfall in Social Security because of what's happening, you know, with basically the number of people getting laid off. They weren't obviously paying into Social Security, et cetera. However, on top of that, um, you are now one uh, have a government that wants to massively expand the dependency on Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security through the expansion of things like uh, you know social benefits, the social welfare net. Um, so these things are already underfunded, and now you're going to increase further demand on those programs by this expansion of the social welfare net, which will just make them, you know, run out of money sooner, unless you start to seriously talk about reformation of these programs in some form. I mean, you're talking roughly about $170 trillion unfunded liability for these programs going forward. And the, the way these get funded um, is through payroll taxes, right? So when you get paid, you pay, you, you pay your, income tax you pay your medicare your Medicaid, yeah all that so either we've got to get more people into the labor force which that hasn't happened in two decades or <laughs> or you're gonna to have to massively increase that 6.2 percent to 10 percent 12 percent 15 percent tax or you're gonna to have to seriously talk about raising the age and the requirements of drawing into these programs in other words starting to eliminate some of these programs that people are on and starting to shift more of the funds towards the programs for actual, you know, retirement, which is what they were meant for previously. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Well, my, my thoughts are that they're going to start to increase that that rate as far as what 
you know, what amount do they tax up to? Mm -hmm. You know, it used to be, you can remember back, it was like 106,000, they moved to 113. Now we're in the $140,000 range and it'll continue to increase as far as what that income level that they'll tax. Um, I do believe that that's going to have to happen. You know, there were talks last year of making that income range actually stop where it currently is. And then they're gonna start again once your income reaches 300,000. Um, I think that that's going to fall a little bit short of what's actually needed. Look, there's going to need to be some major reform. We've known there's problems. Um, they've also set some precedent, Lance. Um, you know, they've bailed out some big public pension mm -hmm. funds over the last year. And if they they're doing that, a private pension fund, excuse me, yep. they're going to have to come in and bail out the largest public fund. There's no there's no doubt about it. But there's going to have to be changes along the way. You know, you're going to see the headlines overnight. I mean, that's all I saw was every major headline was Social Security is going to run out sooner than expected. We've known this. It's gone. It's kind of gone back and forth from 2034 to 2035. That doesn't mean it's going to go away completely. That means that there would be a reduction in benefits. Now, good news is we have some time to fix it. The bad news is that no politician wants to do it. And they're going to continue to kick this can down the road. If they would work on this now, we would see some changes, and, and, and this would be beneficial, right? Uh, there is a problem with immigration. They're also projecting that there's there's less children going to be born this year. Imagine that, um, just like we saw last year with the pandemic. And so this is a problem that's going to continue. And the only way to fix this is to do the, a couple things like you mentioned. One, it's going to be to raise that 6.2% to something higher, which nobody wants to see. Um, and so that's where That's, that's you know, not we electable, talk, by the way. That, that's right. And, and that that's not your tax bracket. This is on top of what your your income taxes are. Yep. And so this is one of those things we talk about with stealth taxes that people are going to to see regardless of income taxes. This is something that they're going to hit you with. And so it may not be that they say, hey, we're going to keep these numbers right where they are. But what we're going to do is we're going to increase that from 6.2 to 8.2 or whatever that number may be. And so you're going to see a reduction in your paycheck as far as what you're taking home. That's something that can occur. We could also see them raise the full retirement age, just like they did back in the 80s from 66 to 67. You know, if you were born between 55 and 59, they increased your full retirement age by two months. Mm -hmm. That's something that we could see. I suspect you'll probably see a little bit of both, Lance. You're going to see, you know, I think it's probably a three-pronged approach here. You're going to raise that 6.2%. You're going to tax more money, so more income. And I think that you're also going to see them raise that retirement age at some point. Raising the retirement age may be the most difficult part of all of those because a lot of people aren't going to pay attention to the rest of it. It's going to be minimal. You'll see it come through and your paycheck may fluctuate a little bit, but none of it is, is very electable, which is why they haven't done anything as of yet. Right. Well, and again, there's just there's just, you know, there's so many different problems that, you know, have come along because of this, you know, when we established Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid originally, it was for a specific group of people. Then we keep expanding the program, putting more people on it. Just a good example: these Af the these Afghan refugees that we're bringing in now, you know, and these are these are great people. You know, they helped they helped us while we were in Afghanistan. They gave us intelligence, and I have no problem bringing them here and giving them harbor. But though that's a hundred and some odd thousand individuals that are now going to be tapping into these welfare programs, not that, and again, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. All I'm saying is, is that these things have happened where we're getting more and more people into a system and we've got fewer and fewer people contributing to it. And, and we've talked about before, you know, demographics are destiny. And to your point, we've had, we've got the lowest birth rate, not, and not just because of the pandemic, we've had the lowest birth rate in the U S for years now, since, you know, world war II. And that birth rate continues to climb. More people opting not to have kids. 
um, social choices, right? Um, we're, we're making choices now um, socially that certain, certain types of relationships are, are fine, but they don't produce children. And those have impacts. You know, we look at China as a good example. Of this. China had a one-child policy for decades, and it almost devastated the country before they had to turn that around very rapidly and start promoting to have more children because demographics are very important. And if we make choices that limit our birth rate, it has an impact on our economy. We have to either have more children born naturally or we have to immigrate. And we have to. And, and immigration doesn't mean just open up your border and bring everybody across the border. You have to have the right type of immigration, right? You need to immigrate people that immediately start contributing to the system. Don't come in and start immediately drawing from the system. That, that amplifies the problem. And so these are the things that, you know, that are going to have to be considered at some point, but these are all things that are politically unelectable. Nobody wants to talk about these issues. They don't want to elect these issues. Um, they certainly don't want to run on a platform of this issue because as soon as you talk about having to reform Social Security, you know, all the boomers go, well, you're not taking away my Social Security. <laughs> I'm not voting for you. So, you know, this is why we wind up doing nothing about it. Uh, you know, and unfortunately, that'll be a this will be the case ultimately until something breaks and then we're forced to do something about it all at once. Well, that's right. And I, I do think that everybody thinks it's going to impact them right away. If nothing is done, everyone will be impacted. Right. If they make these changes, there's going to be a, a, a part of the population that's not going to have any impact whatsoever. You're going to go on business as usual. Mm -hmm. They're not going to make somebody who's 60 years old or, or, or even in your 50s completely derail your Social Security and say, oh, by the way, you're going to now have to wait another couple of years right. before you can get it. Or we're going to give you this big reduction. Correct. So it's going to be like, like Lance, you're going to be fine. You just can't take it till 85. But everybody else, like me, I'm, I'm probably going to have a significant change that I'm going to have to deal with if I'm going to expect to rely on Social Security for some income. Yeah, Danny just kicked my retirement down the road again. 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 Yeah, I think it keeps getting longer know, and longer. Right? So, Lance, you can retire at 105. You're in good shape. You'll live forever. <laughs> hey, right. diet desk plan. Be right back after the break. Go going. Danny and I were just talking about Social Security here a second ago, and he said that, you know, you know, may have to cut some benefits down the road. It reminded me, you know, my wife told me the other day that she doesn't love me anymore. No, that's not what she said. She said you can't have a new rifle. It's the same thing. <laughs> And that's kind of the idea of this, you know, it's like, you know, people, if you say, if you're going to take away some of your social security benefit, you might as well just tell them you're taking away all of it. Cause that's the way they're going to interpret it. Right? It's the same thing. So yeah, it's, that's going to be the challenge. I don't know how you fix social security. There's actually uh, the, our, our friends over at the uh, committee for a responsible budget um, Maya McGinnis and her crew, uh, they just put out a very good report on the Social Security trustee um, report and the potential reforms that need to be made. And it's well worth a read. I'm going to probably adopt that into part of our newsletter this weekend or maybe write an article about it. But, you know, this is a very important topic um, down the road because it does have a lot of important implications, not just from the the monetary standpoint, but from the political standpoint, because, as we said, you know, this current administration has gone off into a direction of expanding deficits and debt and 
and really expanding the dependency. And they're very clear about this, right, that they want to expand the dependency on the social welfare welfare net. And that's great. That's, you know, I don't have a, I do have a problem with it, but, you know, I, you know, it's great that you want to provide a bigger social welfare net. Problem is somebody's got to pay for it, right? And either you pay for it out of your income taxes and, or we've got to fund it through more debt, which gets paid for by taxes. So ultimately, you know, all we're doing is just taking money from one group of people to give it to another group of people. And we're not creating any productivity for it. And this is a, a chart we had out this morning on our Twitter feed. So if you go to at Lance Roberts on Twitter, you can see the chart I put out this morning, which is showing the amount of money that we've spent over the last year, which has been tremendous, right? We've spent more than 20% of the entire U.S. economy between the Fed and the government. And yet we've gotten very little economic growth out of it over the course of the last year, right? Our net growth and gains of the economy, we're barely back above where we were previous to the pandemic after nearly spending 20% of the economy. So in other words, the rate of return, that return on investment of those government dollars is near zero. Um, and there's plenty of evidence that show that government spending or rather the recycling of your tax dollars actually has a negative multiplier effect in the economy. So you know, these are things we're going to have to think about. It's, it's, it's problematic longer term. Your thoughts, Danny? Well, I mean, it's, we're going to continue to see it. It's just like any household. The more debt you have, the more you're robbing from the future. So at some point, you're spending so much just paying down that debt or even paying the interest that it does become a problem. And I don't expect to see us get out of any of these things very quickly, especially the Social Security conundrum that we're in. I mean, this is not a an electable item that, that they're going to be able to focus on because unless you mentioned they're going to change one thing and people are going to think that it's going to be you know it's all or nothing right and you, you don't know, love they're, me anymore. they're not going to vote for it. yeah you don't <laughs> love me anymore right uh, can't get a rifle hey you know it's the same thing you put your eye out hey, with it i know right <laughs> it's the problems of not being able to drive now imagine if your wife had to drive you where hey babe <laughs> yeah, you mind can, taking me up here again for man, what? Oh man, they forgot something last time. Yeah, no. Can you take me to buy a new rifle? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but but these problems. I mean, these are things that aren't just going to go away. You know, if you look at every headline, they're talking about the Biden tax hike looms ahead of us. Mm -hmm. But this is something that'll likely not be included in it. That should. But we will have to see this addressed here at some point. And, and the sooner you do this, the better you're going to be. You know, there's a lot of different ways that you can address this issue. Like last segment, you discussed the demographic problem that we've we've had. It's not just us. It's actually every major developed yep. country is, has a huge problem. Um, and, you know, the the immigration way is one way to actually fix this, but it needs to be thoughtful. I mean, look at all the countries you mentioned, Afghanistan and all mm -hmm. the all of the uh, the people who had to flee. Most of these countries aren't allowing those people to stay. They're giving them a short period of time, and yep. then the United States is going to have to figure out what to do with them. And that that goes for most immigration you see across the globe. It's more thoughtful in an approach, and that's something that we're going to have to see be done here because of the the, the you know the lack of, of new new children, because of the demographic issues that we already see. And it's going to need to be addressed. There's a lot of things on the agenda I think that uh, that that need to be done and voted for here in 2022. And we'll see if it's actually brought up. Are these going to be those hot topics? Well, you know, look, I, you know, I think the upcoming election is going to be very telling about what the 
And this is, again, this is the midterms that we're talking about up in 2022. So this is just for Senate and House seats. But I think this will be much more telling about what, you know, the large majority of Americans think about the direction we're currently headed um, to see how they vote. Because, you know, there was a lot of the vote that occurred, uh, occurred, occurred in... (laughs) you know, in, in the last presidential election cycle, that was really more of a vote about, I just don't want this guy, you know, so I'll take anybody but that guy. And it was, it was very similar to the Hillary Clinton vote that we had previous to that. Uh, this The vote when it comes down to House and Senate is a little bit more of, you know, a choice about policy because this is not so polarizing in terms of, you know, these elections. And so there, there tends to be more of a vote at that point about, I really don't like what my congressman or my senator has been doing. I'm going to vote for this other guy and try something different. So I think it'll be a very telling election that comes up about what people's choices about policy really are. You know, we kind of have this idea from the media that everybody's kind of buying into the socialistic trend in the economy. And it makes it sound that way if you listen to CNN and a lot of these other uh, news stations. It sounds like everybody's wanting to vote for more socialistic policies. You know, maybe I'm in a small group of people. Maybe I'm in the dome of, of, of people that think, you know, conservatively could be the case. But I talk to a lot of people every day. And, you know, by and large, a lot of people, and I, I really talk to people from both sides of the aisle, you know, they're really concerned about where we're headed on, and the debts and the deficits do matter to them. You know, both Democrat and Republican, they do have a concern about the debt and ultimately, you know, having to deal with that and what that potentially means for their kids opportunities and, you know, their opportunities, you know, over the next few years. And again, I think that's also kind of showing up here in consumer confidence. We've had both the consumer confidence from the University of Michigan, as well as the conference board collapse over the last couple of months. A lot of that's due to the fact that stimulus is running out. But it's also, I think, more of a a measure of, you know, how people, if you take a look at underneath the surface, you know, people are concerned about the, the economic situation going forward. And, and, and the more about the, 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 the collapse and the confidence is not about the present. It's more about the future. And I think that tells you a lot. Well, the average American is more similar than they are different. And, you know, the media would like to tell you that everybody's Antifa or the Proud Boys. And, and we know that's the farthest <laughs> thing from the truth, right? True. I mean, it, it's that's not even close. And so I think you, you talk about, you know, talking to many different people and, you know, you reach across the aisle. I think that that's actually probably what most Americans feel like should be done. And we're just not represented well in the media and everything else that, that we see on a daily basis. You know, these social media websites and everything else allows us to live in this vacuum that we've, we've talked about that just, you know, everything bounces off the wall and it's a similar think, thinking. But the problem is that's not what most people feel. Right. And and I think I think this is going to be interesting. Again, you know, the policy choices that we make have consequences. You know, there's an old saying that, you know, you get the government you vote for. And, you know, there's there's you know, if you take a look at a lot of the polls and going back to consumer confidence as example, uh, there's a lot of people that are, are becoming a little bit more disappointed with the choice they made. And, you know, this and if we begin to see economic growth deteriorate even more, which is a very high probability over the course of the next few months, and particularly if we don't get another stimulus bill passed or another you know, infrastructure bill passed, it looks like all this may be hung up for, for a couple more months. Um, those, that economic drag is going to pick up even more, 
And that's going to start to impact earnings expectations. It's going to start to impact the financial markets. And again, this is this is kind of an interesting conundrum for the Fed. You know, the Fed's talking about needing to taper and they waited too long to start tapering. They should have been tapering, you know, last year when the market, you know, when the economy rebounded 30% in the third quarter, they should have started tapering right then and used all that liquidity from the government to back themselves out of the out of the game and give themselves some room. Now they've waited too long. They're going to try to taper as the economy is slowing down. And that's going to put them into a very bad position. And it's going to put the markets in a worse position potentially going into 2022. What's the impact of that on top of potential tax hikes at the same exact time? And maybe you don't get the infrastructure bill and spending bills that you were hoping for. Yeah, that's that ain't good. Because <laughs> it's going to have to be through reconciliation, at least part of this, right? Right. It's like like I said earlier, it's the same thing. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. it's it's and that is a problem. I mean, you're you're kind of coming to this nexus in the universe where you're about to get a collision of a lot of negative events all at one time. And again, look, the market's done a great job of of just completely ignoring everything that's going on. They ignored Afghanistan and ignored the Delta variant. You know, that's starting to fade here, uh, thankfully. Um, but there's been a lot of things that the market has just simply ignored because it's been $120 billion a month in QE. That's all that matters. Um, you know, the problem is, is, you know, if that's what's driving the market, what happens to the market when you start to extract that liquidity, which is what the Fed's talking about doing before the end of the year. So it seems to me there's a lot more risk here than what the, you know, individuals in the markets are thinking. But well, they could me. just give up. They could just give out Bitcoin. I mean, we could fix this problem. Exactly. Move to Missouri. <laughs> you know, maybe I'll maybe I'll get with the mayor over and cut and shoot Texas. They're 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 a small little uh, town. Maybe we can do a Bitcoin experiment and cut and shoot. Well, there's your solution right there. Cut and shoot. Exactly. <laughs> All right, wrap up show today, Danny. Thank you so much. Be back tomorrow, of course, with Michael Leibowitz. We'll talk about what the Fed said here just recently. Um, look, lots of Fed speakers still coming out talking about more need for taper and what does that mean for marks we'll get into that tomorrow with michael leibowitz be sure you're by the website today realinvestmentadvice.com our latest blog post is out be sure and sign up for our daily commentary just click on the link it says get it now on our front page and you can get today's daily market commentary plus while you're there subscribe um, to get it daily delivered right to your email box by 7 30 in the morning before the market starts i'm real science roberts for realinvestmentadvice.com see you tomorrow it's a rich man's world.